Welcome to another edition of Inside the War Room. Ryan Ray here, as always. So good to have you alongside me as we talk to Elizabeth Laris today, who is the author of Politics and Society in Contemporary China. It's actually the second edition. Fantastic read. Really enjoyed it. It's an easy read. It will be on my October reading list, which comes out at 5widebiz.com. Check it out in the show notes, which leads me to my Ryan Recommends, which is... Think and Grow Rich, a book I just finished a few days ago. Fantastic. Um, I'm not sure I agree with all of the things he says because some of them seem kind of out there. However, it's worth a read, and my second time through, reread, and probably another read. If you've never read it, pick it up. If you haven't read it in a while, be sure to check it out. Okay, our sponsor today is Novo. If you're like me and you have your own business, then you need a banking account. I work from home. I don't like going to town. I like all my transactions right here, wherever I'm at. I use Novo, and you should too. It's easy. It's great. I recommend it. I use it for my businesses. Um, so be sure to check out Novo in the show notes below. Okay, again, our time today is with Elizabeth Laris. She has a PhD in, uh, in political science from Virginia um, with a certificate in Asian studies. Also has an MA in public administration from Virginia and a degree from Creighton in journalism. She is an expert on politics of China, Taiwan, Hong Kong, we covered a lot of ground today and look forward to getting her back again on in the future. If you enjoy this podcast, be sure to give us a rating and review or share it with a friend wherever you may find us. Without further ado, here is Elizabeth Laris. Well, Liz, it is wonderful to finally get you on the program. Um, thank you for coming on and thank you for uh, a great book, as I mentioned in the introduction here, uh, the second edition. So, uh, congratulations on the book and everything. How how are things going? Thank you, thank you. Um, very well, very well. The book is uh, being adopted by several colleges and universities in the states and over um, in, in Europe and Taiwan, and a bunch of libraries are picking it up. So um, it's it's the best deal out there. If you want to know about China, it's thirty two fifty. A lot of other books are a lot more, and this is really up to date. The beauty of this book is. It's so up to date. It includes so much about the Xi Jinping years and what's going on in China right now. You know, your book was what got me fascinated in the righteous and harmonious fist. Um, I think you talk about that transition early on and uh, just kind of some of the early history of, of China. And one of the questions that you that, that is debated now, it seems, um, and I, I like to ask the, kind of the China experts' opinion is how much is Xi Jinping like Mao? How much different? How how different is he? Um, he talks about Mao a lot, but Mao obviously and his father had some issues. So, what's your read on Xi Jinping and Mao comparisons? Well, Xi Jinping certainly references Mao quite a bit when you know he can use a certain amount of Mao's ideology to support his position. The Chinese Communist Party has been very, very consistent in its ideology. The Chinese Communist Party is a Leninist system. There is no competition. There's no plurality um, in Leninist party systems. And the head of that party it holds high the banner of that ideology. Now, Mao went through, like Mao's reputation, I should say, went through a little bit of a bad time. Um, after he passed away because of the, uh, people say the excesses of the Cultural Revolution, that's 1966 to 76, when China descended into chaos and people's uh, behavior, it was mob rule, it was pretty much mob rule at that time. And so when Mao passed away, China really wanted to close the door, you know, on that, on that dark chapter. Uh, but now what we're seeing is the Communist Party, um, of course, is, you know, has selective amnesia and certainly doesn't refer to that dark history, but trots out Maoisms when it supports the party. What we're seeing in Xi Jinping is, I think it's a giant step away from his predecessors, most particularly Deng Xiaoping. After Mao passed away in 76, it took maybe about like three years for a true successor to come to power. And Deng Xiaoping for about 20 years was China's paramount leader. And he ushered in a lot of reforms, some political, but limited, but mostly economic reforms. 
Well, now we see Xi Jinping turning the clock back a little bit and that re-strengthening the hand of the state in the economy and really demanding that all of society put the party first. So the economy, politics, and society all must put the party first. Their allegiance is to the party first. And again, that, that is definitely a communist party shtick, but Mao was very, very good at that. And we see that she is going back to that. So there's a little bit of a loosening after Mao passed away. And now we see the grip is tightening again under Xi Jinping. And what is your theory on why it's tightening? There have been a lot of changes in China in the past 40 years since what's called the, since the advent of what is called reform and opening. Deng Xiaoping in 1979 ushered in this policy that China would reform its economy. You know, essentially, after 1979, China jettisoned socialism, right? Socialism is an economic form. Under a socialist economy, the state, on behalf of the people, owns and controls the means of production, okay? So Deng Xiaoping came along in 79 and pretty much jettisoned that model and said that we are going to essentially embrace capitalism and we're going to embrace foreign investments in China because that will strengthen the Chinese economy. And so for about 40 years, well, you know how that story goes. All these companies, all these countries are investing in China. Of course, it's not just the United States, it's the German, the French, the Japanese, the Taiwanese, the Swedes, everyone is there, right? You cannot not be in China. Well, 40 years on, Xi Jinping, Xi Jinping looks and said, okay, that was, that was a phase. That was a phase in our economic and our political development. We are now the world's second largest economy. We have pushed Japan off that pedestal. And we really want to push, Xi Jinping's thinking is, that you know he wants to push the US off its pedestal as the world's largest economy. And so China, under reform and opening in 40 years, has made tremendous progress in doing that. So that like mission has been accomplished. Meanwhile, however, what Xi Jinping and other party hardliners have seen is tremendous Western influence. When we say Western influence, we include Japan in that. Western influence um, in China. And he does not want that influence to, um, to change China. He doesn't want pluralism in China. He doesn't want it to affect Chinese politics. So he's tightening up the screws a bit. See... Yeah, I, I put out there quite often that um, a lot of what I think the CCP is doing now has to do with, um, if you, well, let me, let me rephrase it like this. If you look at what they're most concerned with, they're most concerned with independent thought and, and ideas penetrating the culture. They have all their news funneling through WeChat, state-controlled media. They don't want protests going on in Hong Kong. They're very paranoid about outside ideas influencing in the inside. And so to me, it seems like there's a big... Um, the big concern is that as people began to get rich, they had you know this, this influx of capitalistic ideas. The, the the concern was that hey, this this has gone too far, and if we don't stop it now, you know we're not going to become the you know a democracy style like America, but but we might become more European, and that doesn't bode well for the top of the CCP. Would you agree with that assessment or not? Yeah, we should not be surprised that a communist party is acting like a communist party. <laughs> Right. Again, um, and, and this is a problem having, you know, professors on your show is now we want to, you know, get into these long winded explanations. But we have to understand that communist parties are Leninist in structure, you know, visualize that pyramid where, um, you know, power is vested in the hands of a few. And even within the party itself, it's very hierarchical. Right. So you look at the population of China, there's about 1.4 billion um, Chinese in China, um, but a very, very, very small percentage of that population actually belongs to the Communist Party. Uh, Communist Party is very elite, even though, believe it or not, 
Chinese Communist Party is the largest Communist Party in the world. It has like 90 million members. That's really big, right? But but in proportion to the entire Chinese population, it's it's very elite. And and to enter the Chinese Party, you have to go through um, quite a stringent you know test and a tutelage, and you have to prove that you're you're made of the right stuff. Okay. So this very elite Chinese Communist Party is the vanguard of the proletariat, right? It leads the people. So you cannot have other leaders. You have one leader, and that's the Communist Party. And it moves everybody forward. So now the Communist Party is currently led by Xi Jinping. He's the general secretary of the party. And so he's the point man who's going to lead this country forward. And whenever China enjoys um, economic uh, success or let's say um, success in international organizations, then Xi Jinping gets the credit. If there are failures now, <laughs> he could also you know, be stuck with that too. But in a communist system, it's a lot easier to control the message. So the problems don't stick to him so much. Okay, so you've got this communist party that low is acting like a communist party that doesn't um, tolerate dissent and different views. Now, now, to be honest with you, you know, people in China, the young people in China, of course, they have their opinions and they can express their opinions to each other and to their friends. They just really can't put it out there on social media. And they all know it. They all know it. And it's not like the Chinese are going around talking about politics all the day, all day. My students, my political science majors are not talking about politics all the time, right? They're talking about the latest episode, you know, on TV, and they're talking about who knows you know, where they're going, they're traveling, where they're doing for the holidays, their boyfriend, their girlfriend, whatever. All right. But, but they know very well not to um, outwardly publicly disagree with the party because what the party says goes at least publicly. So again, there should not be a surprise that Xi Jinping does not want Western thought to come in. You know, Deng Xiaoping, he was very clever with like the 20 second soundbite. He had a saying that when you open a window, some flies will come in. And so he said to the party hardliners of the day, we're talking like in the 1980s, when he ran into a lot of resistance to opening China to foreign investments and a lot of foreigners. And he said, yeah, yeah, when they come in, they're going to bring some of their culture and their ideas with them. When I first went to China, uh, I guess the flies that they brought in, the flies that came in, I tell my students are the three M's. It was McDonald's, Madonna, and Michael Jackson. And I know that dates me, right, right, right. So, so you know, uh, Deng Xiaoping recognized that, yeah, foreigners are going to bring their ideas, but you know what? They can be controlled. You know, the, the, way, the, the way that those ideas are disseminated and the way they affect the population can be controlled. And we see Xi Jinping controls it by controlling the social media and the media and the dissidents. You know, if you are a political activist, um, then you are probably incarcerated. Well, you're warned first, right? Yeah. And then if you keep it up, then you're incarcerated. So, so when these ideas come in, there are ways to deal with that again because the party is number one. Yeah, I think that's a that's a great point, and it's a great reminder that when you're talking about messaging from the CCP or the average um, Chinese national who might be in the United States, um, first off, you have to separate. You know, when we're talking about policy and influence, it's a very top elitist group that we're, we're talking about. The average Chinese citizen has no say in what goes on. So you have to consider that. But the other thing is, um, it's hard to get a read of what the average uh, Chinese citizen thinks because they are aware that, hey, getting out of line here could result in trouble, even in the U.S. with the new security laws. And so it makes it very tough to understand exactly what the thoughts are. Um, you know, how they view it. We had Desmond Schumann a few episodes ago, and he was um, bemoaning the fact that even though the people are outside of China, they're still getting all their news through WeChat, um, and it's very much propaganda. So even though they're outside of it, they, they still struggle to see the world in a different light. And so that seems to be a problem to, today as well. Well, yes. And also, the Chinese Communist Party has a united front department that keeps tabs on all Chinese abroad and tries to influence those those students, those people working abroad, 
to portray China in the best light possible. And so you think, well, yeah, I mean, if I'm an American and I'm abroad, I want to portray the U.S. in the best you know, light possible. But we also talk about, you know, America's flaws. And we always, you know, also recognize that, yeah, you know, we're still a work in progress. But United Front work really, really gets people to stay in line. And it can be very intimidating for a lot of the Chinese abroad. Now, you know, it is hard to get a sense on the average Chinese person, what they're thinking about their governments. Because if you go to China and you're a foreigner, are they going to like really open up to you and say, oh, let me tell you what I really think? You know, sometimes, sometimes they do. Believe it or not, when I take a, um, a cab, you know, around, I know there's fewer and fewer cabs because there's more like Didi Chuxing is like Uber over there. But I always talk to the cab drivers because usually we're in a space where there's not other people around. And some of them will really like open up and say, oh, let me tell you. And others are like, no, we're all moving forward together. Everything's great, you know. So there is that when you're a foreigner in their country, are they really going to level with you? And the same thing if Chinese come to the United States, you know, they tend to be patriotic, just as a lot of Americans when they go abroad are like more defensive of America than they are at home. And there is this sense of my country right or wrong. You know, the Chinese will come over and say, yeah, we've got these problems, but we've got a lot right. And 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 they do have a good argument there. I was I was just talking with my family this morning about the crime in American cities. You know, we were inundated with awful information about crime in American cities. Asian cities are safe. And it's not just because in China they've got all this surveillance. Every time you turn around, there's a surveillance camera. They were safe before that surveillance camera. The cities in Taiwan are safe. In Japan are safe. Singapore is safe. South Korea, right? And, and so um, China does have a lot going on the ball. So if we just kind of look at them with a critical eye, yeah, they're going to get their backs up. But getting back to your point, it is hard to know what, and, and, and there's 1.4 billion Chinese. So how can we say the Chinese think this? They think that. Exactly. You know? I mean, the size of China is like the size of the United States, right? And you've got ethnic minorities there, you know, they call them nationalities. So it's not like it's necessarily groupthink, but publicly, they're going to be careful. Right. So you touched on um, Xi Jinping and you mentioned this term party hardliners and you hear this a lot. Um, I was talking to someone um, a few months ago offline and they were they were saying that they kind of felt bad um, for the spot that Xi Jinping's in because their thesis is that he is the head of the party and he is the one out there um, kind of, you know, setting the tone to the message. But they felt that he might be more trapped in the position then he was voluntarily there um, and that the party had really um, put him in that position that, that maybe he doesn't want to be there. It was an interesting theory. I haven't heard anybody else articulate that. What is your thoughts on Xi Jinping? How much is this really his attitude towards um, political aspirations and how much is it maybe potential the party pushing him to be the front, uh, the, the fall man or the man that gets all the glory? I have no evidence that the party pushed him into the position that he did not want to embrace. You know, that that party, uh, that 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 role, I should say, as general secretary of the party can be as as big as 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 the person in the position wants it to be. Um, he he is the man for the time in that the Chinese Communist Party was looking for a very strong leader. I already mentioned something about the Deng years, reform and opening. Well, what happened during those years is there was so much investment, foreign investment in China, but also Chinese themselves left working for the government or state-owned enterprises and started their own business. And Deng Xiaoping is credited with a, a slogan to get rich is glorious. Okay, uh, you can't find that exact saying, but again, he gets credited with these these, these twenty second sound bites, right? Wow! So this is like a communist party saying to get rich is glorious, and believe it or not, after after Deng Xiaoping passes away, the communist party expands to allow capitalists into the communist party. So now you've got an oxymoron. 
You've got capitalist communists and communist capitalists. Like, what is that, right? And so then what starts happening is Deng Xiaoping said, let's allow certain areas of the country to pull ahead. Okay. Generally, communists, they want everyone to rise up together, like in an egalitarian fashion. Well, Deng Xiaoping recognized we've got this huge population and some provinces historically have always been poorer than the coastal provinces that have a lot more natural resources. They've got deep harbors, blah, blah, blah. And so he says, all right, you know what we're going to do? Let, let the coastal areas pull ahead. And then once they pull ahead, we're going to bring the others along as well. Then we'll spread the wealth and bring the others along. Well, what ended up happening over these 40 years of reforms opening is tremendous, a tremendous like income gap and wealth disparity, right? Um, if you don't mind, I'll refer to it as called the Gini Index. And that is the internationally accepted measure of uh, the distribution of wealth in a country. And, and it's usually on a scale of, uh, let's say, zero to one. Okay. And so um, the closer to zero, the closer the figure to zero means um, that society is very egalitarian. When you get closer to one, it means one person has all the wealth in the country. Okay. China under communism, its Gini index was about like 0.32, something like that, quite egalitarian. Now I've seen it's up to 0.7. That's like off the charts. That means there's tremendous wealth disparity. There's a tremendous income gap in China. And this is supposed to be a communist country, right? At least the name of it is the People's Republic of China and it's run by a communist party state. So how do they justify this huge gap and rising discontent associated with that, okay? So, so Xi Jinping comes along and he says, okay, my predecessors, yes, they did help China become the world's second largest economy. And they did try to close the gap with like this harmonious society plan and this and that, but that didn't quite work. So now we have to be really serious. And he's come in. Now, look, if the man didn't want the job, he wouldn't have put himself in charge of everything, right? So Xi Jinping, like many, many Chinese leaders after 49, wear three hats, okay? So first is general secretary of the Communist Party. The second hat is chairman of state. By the way, China does not have a president. Presidents exist in democratic polities, right? China, I'm sorry, it's not democratic, right? The official term, even in Chinese, is chairman, right? So he's chairman of state, and then he's also chairman of the Central Military Commission. That's the Communist Party organ that controls the military. So he wears three hats automatically, pretty much. Well, then he also took on chairman of the Economic Commission, chairman of another military commission, chairman. He's the, the Economist magazine calls him chairman of everything because now he's put himself in charge of just about everything in China. He didn't have to do that. His previous, his successors did not do that. Yeah, they were chairman of, of state, general secretary and head of the military, but they were not the head, the personal head of all these commissions and agencies. I think, I think, don't quote me on this, but I think Xi Jinping might be, might be head of about like 13 agencies and commissions now, which is huge. Yeah. And so he he took that on and he's making this position to be as big and as strong as he wants it to be. Okay. So historically speaking, um, when we think about Mao, some of the stuff that he would do would be to distract the population from what was going on. Like it's bad. So let's have some external threat or perceived threat or some little ruckus uh, get fired up um, to kind of distract what was going on um, inside. When you read kind of the tea leaves of the Chinese economy, potentially, um, they had the Clean Your Plate initiative last year. They have all these things that are going on. And then you look at what's going on with Taiwan or with India or whatever. How much of that is potentially um, the CCP is trying to distract the, the the people inside of their own borders from what's really going on and how much of that is, no, they really are being aggressive and maybe changing some of their foreign policy? Okay, okay. Well, uh, you know, China... Unfortunately, it's not the only country that tries to distract, right? We've seen other, you know, countries. Oh, do yes. We're talking about China today, so we'll stick yes. to China. Well, now, look, look, um, 
perhaps I want to correct a notion that, you know, maybe some of your listeners or some Americans have that like Chinese don't have information. They have information. Chinese have access to the internet. There are more people on the internet in China than America has population. Okay. So then you hear, oh, there's this great firewall. They could, you know, there's a lot of stuff they can't access. Honestly, sure. They can't access like, you know, type in Tiananmen Square. Okay. You're not going to come up with, you know, the massacre of May 4th, 1989. What you'll come up with, Tiananmen Square is the largest public, you know, space in the world, which is true, right? So, you know, they're, they're searching the internet all the time. They're just not coming up with stuff that the party has deemed sensitive. So let me tell you, they know about the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan and what a debacle that is. You know, they know about, you know, um, U.K., Australia and the United States just signing a new pact to supply nuclear uh, powered submarines to Australia. They know that they probably knew that before the Americans. Right. So they know what's going on. It's just that, you know, the government doesn't want them to access certain topics, like they can search all day about Taiwan. They're just not going to find information on, uh, let's say, a Taiwan independence movement, right? So, um, and, and the Chinese travel, right? I mean, the China, well, you know, outside of COVID, you know, uh, parameters or whatever, Chinese are, are, everyone knows, Chinese are famous, you know, tourists, everywhere you go, there's a Chinese tourist, right? They're going to the hotel rooms and they're turning on the TV, right? And they're talking with people when they travel. So they're getting information. So it's not like they don't know what's going on. What is going on is China now is much more powerful than it was 40 years ago at the beginning of reform and opening. I recall, for example, for example, I recall in 1992, right? And that's quite a while ago, China's legislature passed a law that the entire South China Sea belonged to China. It was laughable at the time because they couldn't make good on it. Like, wow, isn't that great? You know, your country can just pass a law and all of a sudden it's yours. Well, let me tell you, here we are in 2021 and they are trying to make good at it. And you know what? They're strong. They have a 70% of their Navy is considered modern. And that's by you know, objective analysts, you know, like naval maritime security watchers. So they have a formidable Navy. They have a larger Navy than the United States does, right? And, and the South China Sea is right there. It's right there. So they have a tremendous presence there. And then to solidify their claims, yeah, they are creating artificial islands. And then they essentially stick their flag on it and say, this is ours. And what are you going to do about it, right? They couldn't do that 40 years ago, 20 years ago. They couldn't do that. They can do that now regarding Taiwan. You know, uh, the Chinese communist from day one said that Taiwan belongs to China. They couldn't make good on it before, but the balance of military power has shifted to China's favor. So that's just the reality. And that's not so much a distraction. That is, they had this agenda 70 years ago. They couldn't do anything about it. They can do something about it now. And if the West doesn't respond, I'm not going to say game over, but it's going to be a real problem if the West doesn't respond to this because China will, China's only going to become stronger. You know, even if the population declines, even if they have economic doldrums, they could still put money into their military. We saw that in the Soviet Union. We saw that in other countries. Look at North Korea, right? They can still put money into their military no matter what happens in the country. Are you concerned with the fact that very few nations acknowledge Taiwan as a nation or as an independent entity? Like if you look at Africa, I think only one country in Africa doesn't acknowledge, uh, you know, considers Taiwan a separate entity. And that's because of the Chinese lending programs demand that if you're gonna take their money, you can't acknowledge Taiwan. So when it comes to a conflict, if you're not kind of a geopolitical uh, person who follows all this stuff, you could be legitimately confused about what's going on with Taiwan because your government has told you for years that that's part of China. 
Ooh, yeah. How much time do you have? You go, go for it all the time you want. Well, you know, when I first first started, you know, studying Taiwan and I went to Taiwan, I think it had like 30 odd, almost 40 diplomatic partners. Now they're down to, um, you know, 15. So, yeah, yeah. You know, Taipei is really quite nervous and concerned about that. However, I have to say, look, the United States broke diplomatic relations with Taiwan um, for China back in 79, and we're still Taiwan's strongest, you know, ally. I mean, we sell them billions of dollars of military aid, and we have a Taiwan Relations Act, which legally obligates the United States to help Taiwan defend itself. So that means we sell them, you know, um, buco bucks of arms, right? Um, yeah, countries switched from Taiwan to China when they found that they could get more money from China. And it's true, you know, in the uh, in the late 90s and in the 2000s, China, uh, Taiwan engaged in what was called checkbook diplomacy and that Taiwan was writing big che checks with third world countries to keep, you know, those, those countries diplomatically aligned with Taipei. But, you know, again, as China has come along as world's second um, largest economy. It's got a lot of money to throw around and not just throw around like in foreign aid, but it has this belt and road initiative, which is honestly world-class infrastructure projects for third world countries. And a lot of the third world countries are saying, okay, you know, China's going to build us a high-speed rail or a highway. You know, where were you? Where was the West when we wanted this? And the West said, well, we did want to do that because it would have put us in bankruptcy or there, you know, it's a folly to build that road because no one's going to use it. Right. But China comes around and it does this and they're grateful. You know, I was just talking with someone from Vietnam and he's like, yeah, here's a railway that China built for us. No one uses it. The last few miles has never been completed. And we are in debt billions of dollars to China for this. So definitely one of the criticisms, it's a debt trap. So I have, to, I have to be honest, one of the attractions of this Belt and Road Initiative in Africa, Southeast Asia, poor countries of the world is it gets them infrastructure they would never get. The West was not going to invest that. They couldn't buy it themselves. They didn't have the money, they didn't have the expertise, the know-how, and China provides that. Does that buy them some diplomatic partners? Yeah, does it make sense? Yeah, on that level, it does. But, you know, for Taiwan, what Taiwan is doing is, first of all, it's trying to hang on to those last 15, but it's also really strengthening unofficial ties with countries, particularly now in the COVID situation. You know, I mean, a lot of countries in the West criticize China for not being transparent about the origins and the initial spread of COVID. Right. And so it spread much more than if they had been honest earlier on, we could have handled it better. Right. OK, so Taiwan starts, you know, looking pretty good compared to China there. And, um, you know, Taiwan is democratic and China is intimidating it. You know, China daily now sends its jet fighters into Taiwan airspace, circumnavigate the island. This is one to intimidate Taiwan. Number two, to bankrupt Taiwan, because every time, well, at least until recently, every time a Chinese you know, military aircraft entered Taiwan airspace, Taiwan would have to send up their own, right, as a response. And that costs a lot of money, right? And so, you know, this type of um, aggression, and then the Hong Kong, you know, cracking down on the Hong Kong um, freedoms didn't go over well in the West. So now you see places like Lithuania, again, like Lithuania is not like the heaviest hitter in the world, but Lithuania is agreeing to change the name of Taiwan's representative office from like the Taipei Economic and Cultural Office to actually calling it the Taiwan office. And China's jumping up and down about this. Taiwan has really turned a lot of countries in Central and what we call Eastern Europe, the Europeans call it Central Europe, okay? So like Poland and um and, and um, like Slovakia and those countries to favoring Taiwan um, and, and, and really looking at China with a jaundiced eye. So the strength that Taiwan has is the unofficial 
relations. A lot of countries are just not going to find it realistic to throw over the PRC, which has a population of 1.4 billion, is a huge market. We our supply chains are tied with China. So that's mm -hmm. a big thing to overthrow. And you know what? I have to be honest with you, Ryan. Anything that a country does in favor of Taiwan that upsets China, China will take it out on Taiwan. Okay, so let's say the United States approves an arms deal with Taiwan. What's China going to do to the United States? Oh, okay, okay, maybe they'll, you know, they'll threaten to rip up some contract with Boeing. It's always Boeing, right? But right. more than likely, they're not only going to send one military aircraft, they're going to send five to go around Taiwan. See, so they put the pressure more on Taiwan whenever the world does something favorable to Taiwan. And that, that puts Taiwan in a really tough spot. It's interesting because you, you talk about changing the name of the embassy and at the end of the Trump administration, you know, um, Pompeo and then were trying to elevate the status and have these whole meetings. And, and it, it, you know, the, maybe the average person uh, who doesn't really follow the Taiwan stuff doesn't realize just how much it does bother um, the CCP's um, kind of narrative when, when these things happen. But it, but it does really get under their skin. And I, I guess I'm not convinced. I know that we it feels like there's two spectrums, right? There's the spectrum, which is we should go to war with China today because they're bad and we want to blow them up. And then we have the, 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 the other spectrum, which is, uh, you know, maybe China is going to crumble and it's all over and, you know, it's, it's all smoke and mirrors. I'm, I'm not on either of those spectrums. I think that they legitimately could pass the U.S. up, but also there's a lot of cracks in the foundation that I'm not sure how they'll overcome. But with that being said, when you look at like the Taiwan deal, um, and those African nations for, for perspective, if they all come out tomorrow and called Taiwan, Taiwan, and said it was a nation or whatever, says a country or whatever the term, they broke them. China can't do anything. And I think that's, they could send some fighter jets over to Taiwan, but they're not going to go invade these African nations. And they, they, so I, I think that their power is far more, when you get outside of the South China Sea, I know they have some military bases and stuff, but it's a lot more smoke than it is fire. Um, look at Brazil. They just said, we're not taking your vaccines anymore. Your vaccines aren't any good. You said they were good. They're no good. We're not going to take them. Um, and so I just, I don't think that internationally, I think that China has a, a reputation that you alluded to with the Belt and Road Initiative. Um, yes, they will come in. Yes, they will do stuff. But I think a lot of people would happily move on if the situation was right. Uh, I, I believe I, you know, I have a different, you know, perspective on that. First of all, I like the idea that like a bulk of countries are going to switch from China to Taiwan. It's not, it's, I mean, it's not realistic. That's not going to happen. They, they're, they're too tied with China now. It's not just the Belt and Road Initiative, but China buys a bunch of their raw materials. And, you know, critics will say that's mercantilist, but they're making a lot of money selling to China their box that, you know, aluminum, a copper, whatever that China needs for its economic development. And remember, a lot of these countries um, that China deals with, they're not democracies, right? I mean, some of them are, some of them, and you'll have a change administration and then they'll get closer, you know, to Taiwan, but it also goes the other way sometimes, right? But, you know, China is usually dealing with some authoritarian or soft authoritarian leaders calling the shots for the country, even if the people say, yeah, we're not really happy, you know, with these vaccines, you know, but you know what, a lot of those countries are happy to get the Chinese vaccines because even though their effectiveness is maybe like 50, 60%, apparently they do prevent people that because they're not getting the Pfizer because there's not enough to go around, right? So they'll they'll take that and then they'll thank China for that. You know, regarding Taiwan, again, again, think of um, think of Chinese power. Um, forget the military equation, right? Let's just put that aside. Um, think of think of Chinese power in the sense of influence. Power is the ability to influence others, right? So you can use military power to influence others to get them to do what you want them to do. Right. But China can also use soft power and soft power is emulative power. That is, we like your culture. So we'll go along with you. China, I have to admit, was making very good inroads on soft power until this COVID debacle. Right. I mean, Chinese movies were coming out. China was influencing Hollywood. 
right? You know, it's the bad guys in American movies, no. not the Chinese, right? I mean, and 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 to get past the Chinese censors, you know, because you know China only accepts thirty-five foreign films a year, okay? Oh. Foreign, not just U.S. So you have to, you know, meet all this criteria, and you want your movie shown in China because other than COVID days, there's more movie houses in China than there is in the United States, and their ticket prices are about the same. It's expensive to go to the movies in China. So you can make buco bucks there. So you're going to make sure that your movie is palatable to the Chinese communist authorities, right? That's influence. Okay, now getting back to the issue of Taiwan. You cannot imagine, Ryan, you and I could get together, have a couple of drinks, and we could hang out for like a week or two. We could not. We could not think of all the ways that China could influence others against Taiwan. I mean, something as simple as like a drop-down menu on like a travel agency website or an airlines you know website that might says china and then oh you want to go to taiwan no they'll say it has to say taipei comma china right mm -hmm. look at the olympics right the, you know the um the the olympians who won from taiwan first they marched in under the olympic chinese taipei flag and then when they won they certainly couldn't play the republic of china anthem by the formal name for taiwan is republic of china that was the china that was established in 1911 after the last emperor was deposed okay maybe we've seen like some of those movies so and that's and that's the government that retreated to taiwan when the communists took over okay so i mean something is like you know you got to change your drop down menu or if you have a poster in your um your academic building that maybe you're getting some funding from China for language studies and the poster has a Taiwan flag or Taiwan is not shaded the same color as mainland China, they're going to let you know about that. Like they really, and that's, that's the beauty of the internet for the Chinese. They can find all this stuff. Right. Okay. If, if you're, if you're, if you're a flight attendant on international airlines and, and sometimes they say like the place where they're from, you can't have Taiwan. You would have to have China. What does this mean? You know, Taiwan doesn't have any representation in the UN. The last time I checked, Palestinian organization, you know, authority does. African Union, it's not even a country. You know, the Vatican, the Holy See, well, that's, that's a country, um, sorry. But you know, there are a lot of entities that aren't even countries and they have some type of like observer status or something in the UN. Taiwan's not in the UN, so it's not in any of its related agencies like the World Health Organization. So, oh my gosh, and and believe it or not, school groups were going to visit the UN in New York field trip, right? Mm -hmm. Well, apparently China was like, you know, the, the rotating chairman of this committee. I think it was like on, on human security and rights or something. Mm -hmm. It went through all those tour groups coming in to see if they had anything at their school that mentioned the word Taiwan. Mm -hmm. And, and people had to like change anything they had at their school. If there was any mention of Taiwan, they had to change and reapply to get their kids to go into the UN as, as, a, um, as a tour group. So this is the influence of China. So don't think like, you know, China has to take Taiwan by sending missiles and forces. They could just erase Taiwan from the international sphere. I'm and glad that you pointed all that out because a lot of people do not realize all the things that you just said. And maybe they're not... Maybe, let's maybe touch on this for a second. Uh, and I don't know if Marriott is the case here per se, but a Marriott hotel, go try to book on Taiwan. Or if you're flying to Delta, these are companies that you are thinking of as companies that operate in America and you can't find Taiwan. Um, Bill Maher a few weeks ago was criticizing the CCP. His map didn't have Taiwan on it. You know, <laughs> He's talking about China influence. Top Gun had to remove a pack yeah. off of Tom Cruise's jacket. Like, so... So I'm glad you brought that up. And for our listeners, what you have to do is realize that Taiwan is being censored out of your life uh, in a way that you're not even aware of it. And it's really hard for us to think about. Now, with that being said, in 1970, it was much easier to do that. In 2021, we're about to put this podcast out. People are going to listen to it. They didn't know this was a thing. And so now it's harder for the CCP to continue that forward pressure. I think what 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 what's, they were so successful, and you talked about North Korea earlier. The difference between North Korea and China is that North Korea does a far better job, it's a lot smaller, a lot easier, of keeping their population isolated. Like you talk about a firewall, 
people locked up. Like it is very much locked down there. There is not a whole lot of outside influence getting in. China doesn't have that same benefit. And North Korea understands that if they ever open up like China did, you're going to see some of these things happen, the cracks in the foundation. So I, I do agree that with what you're saying, um, and I'm not suggesting, I wasn't suggesting that an African bloc would come together to support Taiwan, but also at the same time, it's so much harder in 2021 for China to keep censoring things when we can talk about it. And as long as we can talk about it, it makes it harder because there are plenty of people in the U.S. that once they realize this, go, hold on, wait, 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 wait. That doesn't make any sense. Most people don't realize why Taiwan was called Taipei or they don't realize what happened at the Olympics. But China can't stop us from talking about it. And that's their problem. That's what they, that, that's what ultimately I think we'll, they're going to find a hard a hard problem continuing the censorship. Yeah, um, you know, do not underestimate China's success, though, in changing the arguments. You know, if you are a, a China scholar and you want to get a grant to do research in China, you have to be really careful what you say and what you do. If you want to go to a conference even in Hong Kong, you have to be careful because you know that when you apply to go to these places that China is looking into your background. They're looking to see everything you ever put out there, you know, on the internet, every podcast, you know, every, every, every appearance out there, they're going to look through it because they have the manpower and the technology, the algorithms to do that now. So you find like, let's say you're a budding China scholar and you really want to go to China to do research, you're going to self-censor and you're going to choose to publish on certain things that are safe. So maybe instead of publishing on human rights in China, you're going to publish on like the Chinese economy or yeah. or the Belt and Road. Now, you know, in the United States, it is true that uh, I think China's favorable rating amongst the American public is like 30 percent. And that's and that's largely because of COVID, but also um, you know, the trade, you know, war issues and trade issues. Uh, when I was first started studying China way back in the day, um, people had a very good impression of China because it was new. You know, people right. were like a little bit starry eyed. Was that rose colored glasses? I, it was well over 50%, 60% or more people had a good impression of China. Okay. So I think the Americans are pretty much warned, but the, much, much of the world is not America. I mean, that's okay. That's an understatement. <laughs> but also, but also um, you know, much of the world is less developed. Okay. I mean, I teach a course on developing countries, like out of unrounding 200 countries in the world, hundred at least 145 are less developed. That's most of the world, right? Okay. And so China gives them a different model of development than the U.S. In the U.S., at least now, the way it's supposed to be, if you want foreign aid, you have to meet certain criteria. You know, good government, um, you know, um, um, governing on behalf of the people, taking care of your people, right, with education, vaccination, stuff like that, open markets, capitalism. China comes along and says, no, you don't have to do any of that. Um, here's some money, but just make sure when you use the money, you hire Chinese companies, Okay, so then, so then the third world countries they get annoyed. They're like, "Why are you bringing in Chinese labor when I need a job right here?" But you know, those Chinese workers they come in and they they eat. Now sometimes they bring yeah their own you know food service and their own food, but right. they buy stuff. You know, so when the Chinese come in, it does support the local economy in many ways. They're living there. They need to buy furniture. They need to buy you know um, dishwashing liquid or whatever you would use, right? And so and so then they look at China like, wow, China's not democratic, but it's the world's second largest economy. It's in the UN. It belongs to all these international organizations, and they're here and they're investing in us and they're building a high speed rail and they're doing all of this. China's pretty cool, isn't it? Yeah, that's what they're getting for it. So, you know, a lot of critics say, oh, you know, this this BRI, you know, some of them are going to go bankrupt. China's going to, you know, um, going to go into bankruptcy with some of these projects. No, no, no. It buys them votes. It buys them votes I, in I think, the UN. So, yeah, okay. I think it I think it could buy them. I think, okay, it is buying the votes. It, uh, <laughs> it, it is buying the votes right now. But also to your point about these emerging markets, a lot of them, their governments aren't stable. And, and, and you could have a flip tomorrow. And the new regime no longer cares about paying China back. 
or China votes or Taiwan. And it, it and, and so how it's, it's, a, it's a weird bet to bet on emerging markets that they're going to be the, the banner carriers for a long period of time, because let's be honest, we could see, you know, a lot of turmoil in Africa the next 30, 40 years in the, the people who come into power could care less about what China does, or the, to your point, they could double down. So I, it's, 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 a, it's a weird way to push your chips in. But I do want to talk about the UN for half a second here. I find it weird. Okay, I'm not a big UN person myself. Um, I find it. I find a lot of things to do almost laughable about who's on the Human Rights Council and stuff like this. Um, but when you look at the Uyghur story, it kind of broke really heavy um, last year. All of a sudden, now or maybe it's early this year, it's like Uyghurs are the, are the talk. And China comes to the UN and they're like, "Hey, just come investigate. You know, just come on down. We'll have you investigate." And no one, and I said at the time, "Okay, if you're Joe Biden, if you're you know uh, whoever, you say, okay, we're coming today. We've got a plane. We're sending it over there. We'll be at the airport in 24 hours. They won't let you in, obviously. But that's the kind of stuff that you need to do to put pressure on them to expose them to the world that they are lying. They are being manipulative." Um, make you should force their hand, but but it's weird that we play this game of diplomacy, and they are far better at that than we are because they they seem to open themselves up for um, to easily be explo- exploited as being fraudulent. But but then people don't call their bluff. Why is that? Or or, or people call their bluff, and I'm dismissing it. Wow, you know, I think because our economies are so intertwined at this point, it's difficult, you know, when some companies or when when some countries or, you know, activists in the U.S., you know, made a stink about using, you know, like forced labor, slave labor in Xinjiang. Do you know, like 70% of the cotton that we use in apparel comes from Xinjiang. Xinjiang is that Muslim northwest of China. Then China just said, well, we, you know, we won't sell to you. Oh. Okay, where are we going to get our cotton from? You know, so because because the supply chains are in China, you know, China knows that it has that leverage. So then you would think, okay, another country, so India will get cotton from India, you know, or somewhere else. But you got to start that up, you know, or like the Chinese companies, I mean, the American companies in China, why don't they leave? I've never been a factory owner, but my understanding is you got to move everything to some other country where you know you need to have a consistent supply of electricity. This is a problem in India and even in Vietnam. You need to have the supply chain. You need to have transportation. You need to have management. You have to have the building. You have to have the roads, the transportation. China has that after 40 years, right? So that's why you don't see this massive exit from China to Vietnam, Malaysia, Mexico. So that's one part. They know that American companies and foreign companies as well, well, like just kind of, well, We'll just kind of suck it up. The other rather curious thing is the Muslim countries are not criticizing China for the treatment of the Uyghurs. Even, have you noticed, have you heard anything from the Taliban about China's treatment of Uyghurs? I mean, the the Chinese Communist Party invited the Taliban to visit uh, sometime in the summer. I forget which month, because there was a big photo op, right? You know, they're there in, um, you know, the great hall of the people where, where they meet foreign dignitaries, right? I didn't hear boo from the <laughs> Taliban saying, by the way, you right, know, right. you kind of cut it out up there. Yeah. So they've been noticeably absent. So what gives there? Well, right? I mean, so like Iran struck the 25-year uh, energy deal with them last year, right? And, and Iran claims to have these these things where they're su- supporting, you know, uh, these issues, of course, they're not. And those are very much, um, you know, whatever you want to say, regimes. They're rough, brutal regimes. And so I don't think human rights are anywhere on the top 5, 10, 15, 20 uh, of the things that they're concerned about. So you, I think you have to consider that. I mean, even you look at what happens inside of Saudi Arabia. I mean, you know, these are pretty pretty rough places uh, top down. So I don't think that they care about human rights. And so that's part of the reason I think the UN stuff is – it's kind of laughable. And to your point about the businesses, I agree. And so um, I don't know if you know who Chris Fenton is. Um, he's kind of a, a Hollywood executive who's kind of trying to ring the bell on all the movie stuff. And, I, and I've told him, you know, if Hollywood wants to thrive and they're going to have to start making movies that are probably lower budget and they appeal to the American base and then make a China movie that appears to the China base because trying to thread the needle is just not working anymore. And these companies, um, they're going to have to figure out to your point, how to do this stuff 
Um, but that doesn't answer the question of why the U.S. government or the European Union won't stick up to them. And it's those, it's that kind of leadership at the top that you talk about soft power and stuff like that. That's where I think the concern is, is that you look at, you know, last year, um, pre-Germany being the head of the EU, you know, Xi Jinping was reaching out uh, to Merkel, talking to her like three or four times before she took over. You know, he's putting pressure on her, obviously, as she takes over, uh, Germany takes over for the EU. Um, you know, they're, they're in the EU UN saying stuff. No one's calling them out. I don't know how long that can last. I just, I'm astonished that, that, that it, it, I guess, I guess I'm not astonished, but I also was talking at the same time that, that they play the, they, they play the diplomacy game with China as if China's playing the same game that they are. Right. So, yeah. it, it, and that's, what's so weird is that, and I'm not a China hater. I don't want to go to war with China. I don't want to think bad for Chinese people. I'm not, I just, I just find it weird that China's old, like literally saying, you come to inspect us. Everything's on the up and up. And no one takes them up on that as a serious offer. And we all know that they're probably lying. Like, that's the, that's the consensus, that they're lying. Um, and to me, that's what's so strange. Well, you know, it's interesting. And I'm going to date myself. But, you know, I remember. I remember when the United States um, actually wanted to have some better relations with the Soviet Union. The mm. condition was, you know, if you want to do some trade with us, you have to let the Soviet Jews leave. That was back in like the 70s, early 80s. And so the Soviet Union, you know, agreed that, okay. And that was, of course, that was a human rights issue because they were persecuted. It's like, let, let these people go. We didn't have such an agreement when we started investing. And, when we, and, and actually, I should say, when we normalized relations with mainland China in 79, uh, there was not like some official agreement, like, okay, this is, we're going to hold your feet to the fire on human rights. You know, I tell my students, because it's surprising to them, human rights was not an issue on the international stage until around 76, 77, the Helsinki Accords under President Carter, right? So I know that's like way before my students were born, but, you know, you look at like the history of, you know, the United States and the history of the League of Nations and the UN, human rights, you know, they say, oh, it's in the UN Charter, but it was not, there wasn't a solid platform that if you violate human rights, we're gonna hit you with some sanctions. That really doesn't start until the late 70s, early 80s, right about the time where we normalized relations with China. So there was no like real formal agreement, like you have to do this regarding um, human rights or we're not gonna play ball with you, right? So mm -hmm. we played ball with China anyway, thinking, and I know you've heard this before, thinking that the more our elbows rubbed, we would rub off on China. The more we did business with them, they would loosen up, right? Not just economically, but politically. Because there was this, it's not a theory, there was this thinking that democracy accompanies capitalism. And so we engage China, you know, um, in business, but also we send like students over or ping pong teams, you know, we engage in people to people diplomacy that will rub off on them and they'll change. And we're going to give them time. We're going to give them time to do this. Well, we gave them 40 years and they didn't change because you know what? The communist party's acting like a communist party, right? They got what they could benefit from the relationship with the West, the technology, the know-how, the management, but they're like, we're not going to change our stripes because these are our stripes. So, yeah, human rights. And, and I have to be honest with you, the United States did it continually, um, you know, if, even before now, spoke about human rights to China. Um, again, back in the 90s, when Bill Clinton was president, uh, we had this thing called MFN, Most Favored Nation Status, with our trade partners. And if they met certain conditions, they would not be slapped with super high import duties, right, on their exports coming to the U.S. So countries, almost everyone got, by the way, almost everyone got MFN, right? Well, Congress said, oh, we don't know about this China. So we have to have it uh, scrutinized every year before we renew their MFN status. So Congress would take it up and they would blah, 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 blah about human rights issues in China. And then inevitably they would renew um, US MFN with 
China. So China learned like, okay, here they are. Here's here's the hot air again from Washington, and they're gonna they're just gonna renew it because business has Congress's ear and they want to do business in China. So it was like this sham after a while. And so the U.S. ended up dropping that. And then, well, honestly, China joined the World Trade Organization. And so they did not have to have the MFN renewed every year. It, it kind of you know, like nullified that process. So, you know, what are you going to do about human rights in China? You know, we've sanctioned certain officials because you don't take out a hammer. You don't like just completely cut ties with the country. Then you have no leverage, right? right? So you sanction certain people and you do and then, then China sanctions, you know, some of our guys back and you go back and forth. But does it change China? No, no, it doesn't. No, you know, yeah. what are you going to do? I, so I, I agree. And I, I should make sure I'm clear on this um, for people who are maybe new. I am not articulating that the U.S. foreign policy actually cares about human rights, to be clear. Um, there are plenty, there's plenty of evidence to support that our foreign policy does not care about uh, who, who does what and what nation. Um, it, my particular point in this case is is that we talk about the soft power of China. One of the ways to counteract that is to call their bluff when you can. Uh, and the Uyghur issue would be one of those cases. But you know, when you look at us with Saudi Arabia, with Saudi Arabia, Iraq, Iran, Afghanistan, whatever. That we've got plenty of plenty of spots that we <laughs> our foreign policy can work on some human rights issues as well. Okay, we're up against the clock. Uh, this has been lovely. I've really enjoyed this. Where did, so obviously you got the book here. We're going to link to that in the show notes. But besides that, where else would you want people to go to find out more about your work? Oh, well, they can, you know, they can you know, Google me or duck, duck, go me. Um, uh, certainly, hey, everyone, everyone, take a look at the University of Mary Washington website. And you can see my profile on the political science page. You can see what I'm doing, um, recent activities. Um, yeah, so if, if they want to follow me, I'm also on LinkedIn. I do not use uh, Twitter, Instagram. So, yeah, I'll, I'll plug one for LinkedIn. All right. Thank you so much, listeners. Thank you, as always. And we'll be back. I think this is going on Tuesday, we said, so we'll be back on Thursday. Okay. My pleasure. Thanks.